Welcome to the 171st installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. The Simon Lake area in west-central Minnesota is a mix of croplands, pasture, and native prairie that's owned by a variety of landowners, including farmers, recreationists, natural resource agencies, and environmental groups. Much of the valuable grasslands in this area, which is dominated by a hilly glacial till landscape, is threatened by invasive woody species such as sumac, cedar, buckthorn, and Siberian elm, which can crowd out natural habitat in just a few short years. Another threat to grass in the region is the plow, as corn and soybean production creeps into areas that have never been cultivated before. Such loss of perennial grasslands is bad for a lot of reasons. It means less wildlife cover and more runoff into area lakes and rivers. In addition, livestock farmers are finding it hard to get access to good grazing land, making it more difficult to make a living raising cattle, for example. As more grazers go out of business, more land goes into corn and soybeans, replacing perennial plant systems with row crops that cover the ground for only a few months each year. What has become clear in recent years is that grazers and environmentalists share a common goal, the preservation of quality grasslands. Through the Chippewa 10% Project, the Land Stewardship Project is working with a variety of groups, farmers, and agencies to figure out how to put this common goal to work in areas like Simon Lake. For example, recent demonstration projects have shown that rotational grazing of cattle can actually be an effective tool for controlling invasives and bringing back healthy grasslands. I recently visited the hilltop ranch of Andy Markham, who's been using managed rotational grazing on land adjacent to Sheepberry Fen, a native prairie wetland complex owned by the Nature Conservancy. Markham's land has been in his wife Lindsay's family for many decades, but cattle had not grazed on it for 50 years. As a result, it was overgrown with sumac and other invasives, and the grassland was suffering. Besides raising cattle, Andy also does outreach to area landowners as a staff member of the Land Stewardship Project. As I saw on the July morning that I visited his land, he's got an important message to share. Well-managed, rotational grazing can be an invaluable tool for bringing back natural habitat. And by making livestock production economically viable, it can also bring back a thriving family farm economy in a local community. So Andy, we're here on the back of your place looking at some management you've been doing the past couple years. And uh, you've got, give me a little background, maybe starting out, uh, you, you had described how many acres are here on this place and kind of where we're at. We're kind of overlooking a, another natural area. Yeah, we're back here on the north 50 acres of our ranch. This total is 128 acres that we graze cattle out here on and horses. This land was settled by my wife's family, so it's been in the family forever. The last time that there was cattle on it, though, was about 50 years ago. We put cattle on it for the first time two years ago, um, and we did kind of a mob grazing type deal. We ran 80 head on on this 50 acres that we're on right now late in the fall. So we did... We ran them for three weeks the first year, and then we ran them for two weeks last year just to help knock down a lot of the invasive brush that was out here. There was a lot of prickly ash, sumac. The cedars were covered on this area out here. This ridge we're standing on, we can overlook the Simon Lake area, Mud Creek. can see all the way down into Swift County, and then we're right next on the east side of Sheepberry Fen, which is Nature Conservancy property. Um, and then Fish Lake is right here behind us as well. The first year we were here, 
we had horses and we ran horses out here on this place um, while we were building our grazing system for cattle. And the second year we were here was when we contract grazed the neighbor's cattle on this 50 acres. And we did that before we did mechanical removal of the sumac and cedars. So the cattle, they just kind of helped open up some paths through a lot of the sumac that was old growth, 12 foot high, that it was really impossible to walk through before we had cattle come through and knock down some of that. So the following spring in 2014 was when we were funded for the invasive species removal through Working Lands Initiative. And the contractor came out and mowed all the sumac cedars and hand cut a lot of the bigger cedars on 90 acres of our property. You were describing to me earlier when you came out here in the spring, it was kind of a pleasant surprise. You knew you were going to be knocking back these these invasives, but it sounds like you were a little bit surprised at how so how well some of the native species have come back. Kind of describe the scene that, that you saw when you, you came out here. Yeah, the first time I walked out here this spring, um, after the snow had melted and stuff started to grow, I was surprised by the amount of past flowers that were out here. I mean, there had always been, you know, a few here and there, and there was always a good amount of diversity in the native prairie that was back here. But this spring, I could not believe the amount of flowers I saw and again it started with the past flowers and as we progressed into this summer the amount of wildflowers and the diversity in the grass species that are coming back out here it has blown me away all year the new plants that are coming in that I don't recall ever seeing and it's from the cattle being out here and the disturbance on the land and getting rid of the sumac and these cedars because those native plant species, they'll remain in that seedbed for years and years and years. They just need a chance to establish and grow. So by grazing this off in the late fall, taking care of a lot of those cool season species, it allowed for the warm season natives to come back in the spring once things warmed up. It's really striking just where we're standing right now recording this. We're on your land here where you had knocked back the sumac and cut the cedars and then grazed it. And it it's really diverse. I mean, we've got a few sumac that are starting to come back, but we, you know, we had talked about some of the species we'd seen uh, just walking through here. And we got goldenrod, side oaks, grandma, the lead plant, the purple coneflower. Uh, we're here in the last last week of July, and once you get in here, you realize how diverse it is. And then just looking across the fence, that is solid sumac, and I see where they have cut cedar, but. Wow, it's just, you couldn't, I wouldn't even want to try to walk through that area. No, and this, our neighbor's property here, he's another one that we work with as far as grazing management and invasive species removal goes. So in May of this year, this was funded also through the Working Lands Initiative to have the sumac and cedars mowed and cut. So the sumac regrowth is after it being mowed in May. Sumac, as far as invasive species goes, I feel is the worst plant for native prairie because you can see like you say you can't even try to walk through this right now but before may of this year this sumac it was 12 15 feet high so we have helped set it back we're going to do another mowing of this this fall and then we're going to burn all these cedars that are scattered out through here just to get rid of those and then also help um, eliminate some more sumac but sumac is a species if you're doing it say the organic way by just mechanically removing it changing grazing management it takes about three years of very intensive you know either mowing 
or a lot of animals to graze it to set it back and actually kill it when we were walking through here just now like i said it's the last week of july what can you and both neither of us are real native plant people <laughs> but some of the species that we were just seeing just just this morning yeah there's a lot and like i said it'd be nice to have a native grass specialist out here with us because if you look at just this little 10 foot square that we were standing on in the ridge a little bit ago there's i would say 20 different species of grass flower plants that are growing out here and like you said the side oats grandma uh, big blue little blue indian grass lead plant purple cone flower there's bird's foot violet out here which is extremely rare and a good sign for a healthy native prairie and that's all come due to the fact that we've grazed it and have mechanically removed the invasive woody species you had described a little bit your grazing plan here on out or what you've been doing i mean one of the goals here is to improve this grass for people like you as well as these other landowners to the point where they can increase their herd size and and but doing it in a way that it's protecting these native species and and this system here so yeah when we moved out here four years ago we weren't real sure what we wanted to do with this property we started doing some research on the area in minnesota on the native prairie and found out that it really was a special piece back here there's very little actual native prairie in minnesota anymore so we wanted to do what we could to improve it through that process i found land stewardship project and the farm beginnings program so through farm beginnings through working with landowners with land stewardship project i've learned a lot about rotational grazing grazing management and the diversity of the plants here in minnesota so we decided that we were going to start our own rotational grazing operation out here on this property. We work with NRCS and the EQIP program to help get us started with some of the costs as far as fencing and water lines go. We've spent three years putting in fence. We just finished the last of that this spring, and we just put our water lines in. We deep buried water lines along each cross fence that we have out here on the ranch. So that will help us keep those paddocks smaller size to do some sort of mob grazing and then also be able to spread it out a little bit. If, like this area back here, it's more sensitive land on this ridge than it is down in the low ground. So we're running cattle out here. We're following the take half, leave half method. So we aren't really destroying the plants, but we're causing that disturbance from the animal impact, which will give the boost these plants need to thrive out here on this sandy ridge. I think that's a really good point that um, there's, you know, rotational grazing is better than just throwing them out onto permanent pastures all season long. But then this is maybe even one step beyond that in that you are trying to create a flexible enough system that you can graze different parts of this for different periods of time following the lead of the of the land and the plant systems that you're not saying well i'm always going to leave them out for four days on this paddock maybe some are less maybe some are more kind of thing yeah we did a holistic management course also and put a grazing plan together this spring ideally you want to follow your plans but it doesn't always happen that way um, so we started out this spring and grazed you know in order the paddocks that we wanted to go to but before we knew it the grass in different parts of the ranch were the point where they needed graze. So our grazing plan quickly changed and the fencing system and waterline system we have allows us to be flexible with that. And yeah, each piece that I split them up in, 
I might leave them in there for a day. I might leave them in there for seven days, depending on what type of forage is there and what the needs of the grassland and soil out here is. That's another big thing that we're working on is improving the soil, um, organic matter in the soil. This is very sandy country out here. So there's not a lot of organic matter and the plants are, they're diverse, but, um, there's a lot of open bare spots in the ground, especially up here on these big ridges. So, uh, we're, like I said, utilizing the cattle to help boost those plants, allow the warm season natives to grow, fill in those areas that are bare throughout this piece back here and just see where it takes us. This is part of a wider, uh, as far as land stewardship project is, uh, is involved with it's kind of a wider effort to work with landowners in this area who are both farmers and non-farmers. You guys had done some kind of community meetings over the past couple winters or past couple years where tried to figure out what they had some if uh, what some common goals were because there had been some uh, tension between there still is some tension between maybe some of the farmers in the area and land uh, non-farm landowners both DNR, Fish and Wildlife, and Nature Conservancy, as well as people who maybe have land for recreational purposes and thought, oh, the way to have great wildlife habitat for hunting or whatever is just uh, put a fence around it and don't let anything in. But this is kind of part of that bigger effort to show that this working lands can uh, maybe help people attain a common goal, which is good habitat, grassland habitat type of thing. Yeah, a lot of this property out in the Simon Lake area, which is in southeast Pope County, is owned by recreational or absentee landowners. They bought this property for, you know, the wildlife value that was on this land. There was a lot of wildlife, and there still is. But the thing about it was people, the recreational landowners, bought it from farmers and ranchers that used to run cattle out here. So you talk to some of the old-timers in this area that have grown up their whole lives, 70, 80, 90 years in this area, they talk about how they used to be able to walk up on these ridges and look across the landscape and not see a tree. So as the cattle producers kind of started to move out of this area, land started getting bought by recreational landowners, which is great. Um, the deer, turkey, pheasant numbers were abundant. Well, over the last 20, 30 years, on these properties where the cattle have came off, the invasive species have taken over. So the wildlife has started to move out of those areas where there is no disturbance on the land. So they're moving off of those properties, going to other properties that are being grazed or farmed because they have everything that they need. They have the bedding habitat. They have the food. Like I said, the nutritional value of that new growth grass, after you pull cattle off of a pasture, the deer and turkeys that follow, I mean, it's amazing to watch. I met with these landowners individually on a one-to-one basis, and we talked about their goals, what they value, what they want to see on their land and in their community. And a lot of these people thought they were so far out in left field that their neighbors would think they were crazy if they wanted to change management out here. Well, everybody was on the same page. They had the same goals. They had similar values, and they wanted to see the same thing for their community. So we held these landowner meetings where we got everybody in the same room talking about this, and we came up with an idea of managing this whole landscape together, utilizing mechanical invasive species removal and a landscape-level grazing system. There's six cattle producers, larger producers in this area. We're using some of their cattle on individual recreational properties. There's a lot of DNR, Nature Conservancy, Fish and Wildlife land out here. 
that we have been grazing the last few years, the benefit people are seeing just in that two, three-year time frame, they can see it's working. They can see the wildlife coming back, and the habitat and the grassland has improved dramatically. Well, and I think that would be to the average, maybe, person who's interested in environmental issues, everything from clean water to wildlife habitat to whatever Either they kind of have a passive interest in it or they're maybe they're even somebody who's been very involved with environmental issues and has a scientific background. It might be surprising to them that livestock impact on the land is a positive force, and it, it sounds like that this has helped maybe turn some minds on that. Definitely. The idea when a lot of these programs like CRP and CREP and RIM came out through the Soil and Water offices, that the idea to save and protect the grassland was to put it in a program and never allow any cattle or livestock on it whatsoever. Well, at the time, yeah, it was good for a while, but what that allowed is just a breeding ground for invasive species. There's been several studies and research done on continuous grazing versus no grazing and now versus rotational grazing. And the cool thing about that is, is that the continuous grazing as far as soil quality, rooting depths, plant quality goes against no grazing, it's exactly the same. There's no difference at all. The health just isn't there. Well, if you go to a rotational grazing system and even just hit one paddock or one pasture once a year and pull them off, the soil quality improves, plant quality improves, the rooting depths on those plants are allowed to grow and get deeper and deeper, which in turn helps with runoff and the water quality in the area. So we're pushing a lot on this rotational grazing idea to help improve, you know, water quality, but also the native prairie in this area. I think on an even bigger picture view, you're an example of this, but also we're seeing other examples that this could give an opportunity for beginning farmers to launch an operation especially sometimes they'll plant corn and beans just about anywhere but i don't think even the most hardcore corn guy would plant on this uh, glacial till on this extremely stream hill here so this is rougher ground maybe it's a little less expensive uh, in some areas and so it can provide an opportunity to provide some income on some of this i guess more what you call rougher land or or marginal land Yeah, that is another goal that we have out here for the Simon Lake Challenge in this community is people want to see the community restored to what it once was. Dan Genegas is another farmer in the area that talks about how 30 years ago, school bus would come out and drive around this area and pick up a busload of kids, take to school. Well, nowadays you could do that in a car. There's very few that live here out in this area year round. And with that, the amount of land that is not being grazed, the amount of government land like Fish and Wildlife, Nature Conservancy, uh, DNR land, that allows a great opportunity for beginning farmers. If they don't have a huge land base at their home place, it allows them more grassland to be able to work with these agencies to help grow their herd and graze throughout the summer. For more information on LSP's work to promote profitable working lands conservation, see the Stewardship and Food section at www.landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Morgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. 
And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.